Uh, this morning we're going to be back in First Peter. We've been trying to get through First Peter, our study in First Peter. We're still in the first chapter, but that's okay. There's a lot here. First Peter chapter one. And so far, what we've seen is Peter's describing the great salvation we have in Jesus Christ, secured by him, and the privilege that we have of being in Christ, and then the blessings of the lively hope we look forward to the future in heaven with him. And because of that, then the call to holiness, as we saw the last, well, last month or so, um, in verses 13 through 16, that is our response to the great salvation that God has given us. So today we're going to start chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. We'll read those verses as we begin here, verses 17 through 21. And this comes right on the heels of the command, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So let's start at verse 17, and we'll read down through verse 21. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 17, the Bible says, If ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here with fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times to you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Let's stop there. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into our message this morning. Our Lord, I thank you again for your word, and we thank you for giving us the opportunity to be together to hear your word to be taught by it, to be challenged by your truth today. And Lord, we need your help. I pray that you would remove all the distractions from our minds and from around us. I pray that your spirit might be able to speak directly to our hearts with this truth so that we might know the things that you want us to know today. Lord, I pray that you would give me strength. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, so I need your help today. I need your strength I need to be filled with your spirit, so I ask for a portion of your spirit to be able to speak your truth, to proclaim your word with boldness and power as it comes from you. And Lord, may we hear from you today. We thank you for this time, and even as we look into your word, may Jesus Christ be lifted up above all else. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Within 1 Peter, what we've seen, again, as I said, this great salvation that we have in Christ, but with great blessing and with great privilege comes great responsibility. And that was Jesus' words, as we saw in this um, command in verse 16, to be holy as he is holy. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much more shall be required. We've been given much in Jesus Christ and the salvation that we have from him. And so the privilege of being secured by God to eternal life brings the responsibility or the response of living in holiness as the one who has called us is holy. That was the substance of verses 13 through 16. Because 
that is how God is as our Father, that is how we should become, or that's how we should desire to become. And so we have this great privilege and blessing in that salvation, and there's a great responsibility of walking in holiness then because of that salvation. And then we spent some time looking at three obstacles that can get in our way of uh, obtaining or walking in that holiness that God has called us to. First, we saw apathy, basically a lack of desire to be holy, which may indicate a lack of faith in the first place. If we're called in faith to salvation, then that faith should cause us to desire the things that God desires for us. And so apathy will will prevent us from walking in uh, holiness. The second one is ignorance or a lack of understanding of God's truth and God's will for us. And basically that can also be caused by our apathy toward God's plan for us. So apathy and ignorance are the first two, and lust was the third. The natural desires of our body which become more important to us than the desire to serve the Lord or what God's desires for us are. And as we serve those lusts, then we are off the path of walking in holiness because it becomes all about us rather than all about God. So those are the obstacles, but Peter makes it very clear in verses 13 through 16 that holiness is not just a command to us. It should be the desire of every true believer who is in Jesus Christ, who has this salvation. So as we come to verses 17 through 21 this morning, Peter explains another another privilege that we have as redeemed sinners, and then there's a responsibility that comes with that as well. And in verse 17, he tells us, we have the privilege of calling the almighty judge of the world and the universe our father. And that's how he starts. And then in the verses following, he says, if that is true that we call him Father, then our response should be to conduct ourselves in fear before him on this earth. So there's another privilege, a great privilege, and responsibility that comes with it. And so in verse 17, we're going to spend most of our time there this morning, Peter gives us four principles of our relationship with God as our Father that should motivate us to surrender ourselves to that call of holiness that he gave us in verses 13 through 16 and to surrender ourselves to God's plan for our life because we are his children and we call him Father. So of these four principles, the first is this, and we read it right away in verse 17. If ye call on the Father or if you call him Father. So the first principle is the right of calling God our Father. Now, that's an amazing thing that we have as believers if we are true believers. We can call God our Father. And we're not just saying God in a generic sense. We're talking about the Almighty Creator who created everything that we see and sustains it by the power of His Word. It is the God who provided salvation for us through Jesus Christ. It is the God who sustains us and sustains our life, both physically and spiritually. It is the God who is the great judge, who will judge all mankind at the end of time. This is the God that we call our Father. And we already saw we know we are his children 
because of our desire to be like him. That's the way it works, hopefully, in families, that children desire to be like their parents. Especially if we have a perfect father, as God is, we should desire even more to be like him. And a lack of desire in that regard may indicate that we're not in a position to call him father because we're not truly his children. But Jesus told him, told uh, Jesus himself told us that we are to call him Father. We already did this this morning. As we prayed the Lord's Prayer together, how did we start? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That was Jesus' command. When the disciples said, teach us to pray, Jesus said, here's how you should pray. Say this, our Father, who art in heaven. And so Jesus commanded us to call him Father. Now, remember, when Jesus taught that, Peter was standing there listening to him. And now he remembers this teaching that Jesus gave him, and he's giving it to us here in this epistle. And so he says, we should call him Father. But he's not implying in any way that we should not call God Father. It's the proper thing to do. But he uses the words, if ye call on the Father, because there's an if. Now the if is... If you call him father, then there's a responsibility. But true believers have the privilege and the right to call God our father. The, the, uh, Peter so then is telling us to call him father because it's the proper thing for us to do. Now, in, this, in the Greek, in this sentence, in this verse here in verse 17, this word or the phrase, the way it's written, positions the word father before the verb. So there's an emphasis on the father in the Greek. And Alan Stibbs, a commentator, explains it this way. He says, this emphasizes the wonder that Christians are able to invoke the supreme impartial judge as our father on the basis of the fact that he is our father. The word call here, if we call him father, is actually the word to appeal. We appeal to the Father. Paul used the same word in Acts chapter 25, verse 11, when he said he appeals unto Caesar. He was appealing to the authority of Caesar to judge rightly in his case. And that's literally what Peter is saying here. If we call God the judge, our Father, we have the right to appeal to him for his goodness, for his help, for his provision, for anything that we need. We are in a position to have the right to go to God and appeal based on the fact that he's our father to give us what we need. So there's a lot involved in what we, in what we see here when, G, when uh, Peter says we have the right to call him our father. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus said this, If we as earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to our children... How much more shall your Father in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Now, that's a huge privilege for us as believers. God wants to give us good things in our life. And we have the right to go to him as our Father and ask for things because he's our Father. Now, hopefully, you know, my children, I'm, I'm hoping, have uh, the freedom to come to me to ask for things that they need. Now, sometimes I know, no, that's not the best thing, and I won't give it to them. I'll say, no, 
You know, when they were little, you know, it's, can I have a cookie? Well, no, we're going to eat dinner in five minutes. I'm not going to give you a cookie. But they had the right to come and ask me because I'm their father. And we have that same right before God. We can go to him and ask him for things that we want or need. Now, it doesn't mean he's going to give us everything we want, but he will supply our needs. And and Jesus said he will give us all good things to them that ask him. The problem is we don't know what's best for us, but God does. And so he'll give us what's best for us, and we have to learn what's best for us. But Peter starts by saying we have that right to go and appeal to our father because we're related to him as his children. So that's the first principle that he lays out here. Second is the reality not only that God is our father, but also that he is our judge. And we have to remember this reality that God is also our judge. Okay? In Peter, uh, Peter says here in verse 17 that the one who we call father is the righteous and holy judge. He lists this, he uses these phrases, who without respect of person judges according to every man's work. Okay? So it's not just our father, but we have to understand the reality that he is our judge. That means that God judges with impartiality, without impartiality. Okay? He does not make favorites. There are no such thing as teacher's pets for God. In fact, um, my son was just telling me about some of his classes at the university. And he said, you know, the teacher gave this test and or the, the uh, assignment and people turned in their pages and all the grades seemed to be low, so they kind of adjusted the grades. It's called grading on a curve. You understand that? Okay. Now, Human teachers may do that either because all of the students did poorly or because they just didn't teach well. Um, And so they grade on a curve to bring about the average grade within the average scale that it's supposed to fall within. Okay, that's not how God grades our lives. God does not grade on on a curve. God is very specifically objective and he grades and he judges according to his truth and his truth alone. It's not whether we are capable or our ability or, you know, God, these circumstances got in the way or, you know, I just didn't understand. God gives us his truth very plain and clear and holds us responsible to his truth plain and clear. And so there's no uh, partiality with God. And Peter says here that he is without respect of persons. It doesn't matter who you are. Because I'm a pastor, God's not going to give me a pass on things that he's going to judge other people for. Because you may think that you have a, a mature spiritual walk with the Lord, you're not given a pass on things that other people God's going to hold accountable for. We're all held accountable for the same things. And that is whether we live in his truth and live according to his truth. So God judges us all the same. He's objective in his judgment. Now, here's the idea that many people get. Well, because I'm a Christian, I deserve such and such. Because God's my father, I then deserve such and such. I was reading an article a couple of months ago, actually, about a very famous and wealthy, now retired basketball star, and he has several children, 
And he has millions and millions and millions of dollars in the bank. But he told his children, that is not your money. That is the money I worked for. If you need money, you can ask me to help you, but you're going to get a job and you're going to earn your own money. Okay? All of us are held accountable before God. Because we're in a church, we don't automatically just assume the goodness that comes with the church. Because we're connected with God, we just don't automatically assume all of the goodness of God, and all of a sudden our life is perfect. God will still judge us according to his standards and his word. And what we deserve is not what we get. The entitlement mindset has taken over our culture, and it's taken over the church to some degree, because Christians believe that, well, because I accepted Christ as my Savior, then I deserve for God to do this for me. Well, let's talk about what we deserve as human beings. What we deserve is eternal punishment. That's what we've earned. In Romans chapter 3, verses 20, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's no exception on that. It's not for all except those who believe. It says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then in Romans 6, it says the wages of that sin is death. So you want to talk about what we deserve? We deserve death. Even as the children of God, we deserve death. In Romans 5.12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, because all have sinned. Now, let me ask a question that Jesus asked. Okay? How many of you here are without sin? Okay. All of us have sinned. And therefore, all of us deserve death and eternal punishment. That's just the way it is. That's according to God's impartial judgment. We deserve eternal death because of what we've earned. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't God spare believers from judgment? That eternal punishment? And the answer is absolutely yes. God will spare believers from eternal death. But here's the point. Okay, just because he has spared us from the eternal punishment of sin, God does not overlook or excuse our sin without punishment. The punishment still has to be paid. But here's the good news. Jesus took the punishment. He took our punishment. The punishment still had to be executed for our sin. It's not just God says, okay, it's gone, not going to think about it anymore. God is a just judge, and he judges impartially. So even for his children, sin has to be punished, but we don't have to bear the punishment because Jesus did it for us. And so God is not partial when he looks down on those who believes and says, you're forgiven, I'm going to let my mercy cleanse you from your sin because the blood of Christ has paid for that sin already. I want you to think about this. When Jesus died on the cross, all the wrath that was aimed at us because of our sin, what we deserve, went on Jesus Christ. When you think about just within your own self and the sin that you've committed and what God has forgiven you for and Jesus took it, that should put a greater value on the salvation that God has given us through Jesus Christ. 
So when Peter talks about the impartial judge, it means that sin has to be judged. But also, God is our judge as his children as well. And this is what Peter is talking or includes here. It means that God is going to judge us all according to our works that we do while we are on this earth. Just because we're saved and we're forgiven of that sin doesn't mean that God gives us a free pass to live any way we want to. We're going to be held accountable for what we did with this great gift of salvation that we've received from Jesus Christ. What, are, what have you done with that eternal life? What have you done with those blessings? What have you done with the truth that God has given you? And God will judge us for that as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Now, that's not just performance. That's about our heart and what comes out of the character that God is building in us. We just studied about God's holiness that he's called us to, and it's holiness in all manner of our conduct. There's the good works. So Jesus saved us to good works. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. What's the point of all that? So that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. That's the fruit. This morning we were talking about the, um, John 15, and Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. If we abide in him, then we will bear much fruit. The fruit is the outward conduct that comes from an inner um, changing of our life and our character, or the inner indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which gives us the character of Christ. Therefore, our outward works should look like what Jesus would do if he were here today. That's these good works, and that's what we ordained to in salvation. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they have, which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. So that's what we've been called to as believers, a life of good works, not performance, but a character that's changed and then exhibits the nature of Christ in how we live. See, we talked about that when we talked about this call to holiness. And in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it tells us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. When we die, when we go to heaven, one of the very first things that happens is Jesus is going to stand us up one by one, and he's going to say, what did you do with the gift that I gave you? And it says, everyone will receive the things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. We will be judged. We won't receive eternal punishment for our sin, but we will be judged for what we did with the gift that God gave us. And God is that eternal judge, our Father. And it's Jesus Christ, his Son, who will stand there, and according to God's standard, will judge us for what we've done in good works with the gift of salvation. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, Paul says this, For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's the foundation of everything we should be doing. And he goes on, Now if any man build upon the foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Paul is saying that we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and Christ's going to lay out everything that we've done in our lives, and is basically going to be tried by the fire of God's standard, of his truth, and whatever does not meet with his standard, whatever does not come out of a work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as spiritual fruit, that will all be burned up. What's left is what we have to present to Jesus Christ as our answer, what did you do with the gift that God gave you? So we will be judged. And God promises that for those true good works, we will be given rewards in heaven. The crowns of righteousness, the overcomers that are talked about in Revelation 2 and 3, those who overcome adversity, those who are faithful in serving the Lord regardless of their circumstances, regardless of the attacks by Satan, regardless of the temptations that are put in their way, they will receive the crown of life. They will receive those rewards. And eventually, we will cast those crowns before Jesus' feet because it's his in the first place. He's the one that deserves it, not us. But God promises we'll receive those rewards. And it's for that reason, and Peter says at the end of verse 17, because God is our judge and we will be judged for everything we do in this earth, we should pass our time on this earth in fear. Look at the end of verse 17. Who without respect of persons judges according to every man's work, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Because, not just because God is our Father, but because God is our judge. We must live in fear. Now, is Peter saying then we have to be afraid all the time? We have to be afraid of what God's going to do to us. We have to be afraid of who God is. We have to be afraid of eternal punishment. Not as believers, no. In fact, over 300 times in Scripture, the Bible tells us, don't fear. That was God's message over and over to his people. Don't fear, because I'm with you. Don't fear. I will take care of this. Don't fear. I will provide for you. Don't fear. I will direct you. So no, it's not a fear of what's going to happen to us. But I want to take you to the Old Testament to help you understand this word fear. And when God gave the Old Testament law, he specifically commanded his people to take heed to it and to make sure that they obeyed it. In Deuteronomy 6, we have what's called the Shema. Okay? The word Shema in Hebrew means to listen and obey. And if you know Deuteronomy chapter 6, the way it starts, actually this is a prayer that uh, Jewish people will pray, especially at Passover. They, they pray it continually because it's a command from God that becomes the center of their life. 
And in it, he says, know that I am one God. There's only one God. And you are going to learn to do my commandments. Okay, let me read you verses 1 and 2. Here's how he introduces this passage. Now, these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land whither ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son, thy son's son, all the days of thy life, that thy days may be prolonged. Now, there's nothing in there about being afraid of punishment. What's in there is obedience. And that's why it's called the Shema, because it means listen to what God is saying and obey it. Learn the right things to do and do them. And this becomes the the center of everything Israel was supposed to do. It goes on, it says, you're supposed to teach these things to your children. And you're supposed to teach them when you walk by the way, when you lay down in bed, when you sit down. Every minute of the day, you're teaching your children these commands so that they can learn to live by them. And that they will teach their children. So when he says that thou may fear God, it begins with an understanding of his word so that we will obey him. It's not about fear of punishment. God's taking care of that for us as believers. So obviously, according to Deuteronomy 6, fearing the Lord is directly connected to obeying God's commands to us. But it's not a fear of the consequences of disobeying that's included in this term. The idea is because of who God is, Because of his authority, his majesty, because of his power, that's our motivation to obey him. Not a fear of what will happen to us if we don't. It's because of who God is that we obey him. So it includes this idea of reverence and awe. Stand in awe before our God. In other words, if God is the only true God of the universe, both the great creator and the great judge of mankind, then out of respect of his authority and power, we give him the honor of our obedience and duty. That's what Peter's talking about. We spend our time obeying, respecting in awe that the great judge is our father. But there's even more attached to it than this. Peter puts it here in the context of him being our father. And remember, it's not just the great judge, he is our father. Think about this great God, this almighty God of the universe, an all-powerful, all-knowing God who controls everything. He breathes out everything that's in creation. He breathes out stars. This is our Father. Now that is an awe-inspiring fact in and of itself. We can go to that God as our Father. And the fifth commandment tells us what? As far as our earthly fathers, the fifth commandment says, honor your father and mother, our parents, right? Our earthly parents. Why? Because God has established them as authority figures in our lives, as children. Now, not only are parents authority figures, but God has given to them, to us, while we're young, 
to care for us, to protect us, to teach us, to prepare us for what comes next in life. Now, isn't that what God does for us as our Father, though? God is not just the great judge. He's our Father, and so he provides for us. He cares for us. He protects us. He prepares us for what's coming next. And what's coming next? To live in his kingdom forever, where holiness is the only rule. So everything God does now is for our good to prepare us, to provide for us, so that we will be ready in holiness when we get there. And so Peter says, if we call God our Father, then we're to treat him as our Father with love and respect. That fifth commandment reflects that principle in how we should treat our parents. It's not a fear that my father's going to beat me bloody, It's an awe and respect and a love because that father is an authority figure in my life and yet in his authority he's able to take care of me, provide for me, prepare me, and it's all done in love. 1 John 4.18 says, Perfect love casts out fear. So is there a contradiction here between loving God and fearing God? No. Actually, they work together. When we love God, we understand who he is. Our love return to God comes in an attitude of awe and respect and reverence. So Peter is talking about a type of fear here that is born in honoring God and loving God as the Father who loves us. And if, true, if God truly loves us as he says he loves us, then our love for him will respond us, will cause us to respond in the right kind of reverential fear of the almighty judge who is our father. And it's not a fear of punishment. It's not a fear of judgment. Think of it in love. It's a fear of failing to fulfill the purpose to which he's called us. It's a fear of that we might offend our Holy Father who wants only the best for us. It's a fear of falling short, of lifting him up as our great Father to all those who see us might live every day in our lives. It's a fear of disappointing the Almighty Judge, but of disappointing our Father. He's done nothing but show us goodness and love. And therefore, our attitude before him and because of his love should be one of fear, fearing that we will fail him. That's the fear that Peter is talking about. We love God. We don't want to disappoint him. And that's the motivation then toward becoming holy as he is holy because that's his desire for us. That should be our desire. And to fail in that not only grieves God, but it should grieve us as well. If we do not have a fear of failing God or causing him grief, because you as his child have chosen to dishonor him in your life, then you probably should fear judgment for your sin, because you can't be a child of God 
and not have the same desires that God has for us. We have to have at least the desire to become like our father, to call ourselves his children. Now, here's the real problem with believers today. We, don't know, we have no idea how to fear God because our culture has no fear of God. And we have let our culture define our Christianity. In our culture, we have completely abandoned the idea of respect for authority. It is not taught, it is not modeled in our culture today. Think about a whole generation, probably the last several generations. As children, even up into their early 20s and 30s, children have demeaned and degraded parents as a whole, especially fathers. Think about our entertainment. How are parents generally portrayed in movies and on TV? They're incompetent, they're foolish, they have no idea what's going on, and if anything ever happens that turns out right based on choices they made, it was completely by accident or it was because of the intervention of their wife, right? I mean, that's our entertainment, but that's the way our culture views fathers. And that's what they're teaching children today, that the father is just this figure who's an idiot, and just happens to be in your life, so you've got to you know, take care of yourself. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Find your inner strength. Follow your heart. The father is nothing. They portray a father's relationship with his children either as a buddy-buddy kind of person who you just joke around with or an adversary who you have to argue with all the time. That's the scripts of our TV and movies. And when it comes to children getting what they want, the father is always portrayed as evil if he doesn't bend to the child's will and give him every win and let them have a fun life of partying and doing whatever they want. Right? That's our culture. The children are entitled. They are not subject to the authority of their father. And because this is a distorted view of fathers, it gives us a distorted view of God as our father as well. This is what we learn. And we start to view God the same way that Hollywood has portrayed earthly fathers. But our heavenly father is not a foolish, is not an incompetent and ignorant person. Our heavenly father is all wise, and we are not in a position to argue with him. Read the book of Job if you have questions about that. Our Heavenly Father is all-powerful. He is not weak and incompetent. Our Heavenly Father has a perfect plan for our lives, and nothing he does is by accident, and he needs no one else to help him accomplish it. Our Heavenly Father is also holy and righteous, and he cannot tolerate sin, let alone condone it, because his children make a choice to go outside of his ways. And while he's merciful and forgiving, he's also a very strict and loving disciplinarian who will not let sin go uncorrected in his children. The Bible tells us very clearly that God chastens those he loves. He will not let us live in continuous sin without intervening. And it's because of his love for us 
that he must correct us when we step out of his way. See, God as our Father wants us to have everything that is best for us. That's his love. He wants to give us everything that's best for us. But he also knows that everything that's best for us is found in walking in his way. When we go our own way, we miss God's best. And so when he withholds things that we think we should have, what's our response? We get angry, we get moody, we sit around and pout, we shout at God that he's not fair, that he hates us, just like irresponsible and immature children, because that's what we are. We think we're entitled to whatever we want because God's our father and he's a genie. He can do anything, and so we'll claim anything. And so in one breath, we praise God for our salvation, that we're set free from the punishment of hell, and then in the next breath, we curse him for not letting us have everything that we want on this earth. That's not the way it ought to be. That's an absolute disrespect for who God is. And our problem is that in pride and selfishness, like spoiled little children, we think we know what's best for us. But a God in his wisdom only wants to give us what is truly best for us. And only as we walk in his way will we receive what God wants us to have. In Genesis 22... You read the story of Abraham and Isaac. God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And you know the story if you know the passage. Abraham packs up all the stuff. He packs up his son and two servants. They take this journey out into the wilderness. They come to Mount Moriah. And God says, there it is. I want you to go to the top and sacrifice Isaac. And he leaves the servants and the donkeys behind. He takes only what he needs for the sacrifice. And as they're walking up, Isaac turns to him and says, Okay, we have the wood, we have the fire. Where's the animal? And remember God's response. Or remember Abraham's response. He says, God will provide himself a lamb for this sacrifice. And they get to the top, and Abraham binds Isaac, and he lays him on the altar and raises the knife, and as he's just about to plunge it into his son's heart, the angel of the Lord stops him. And he says, I've seen that you are faithful, that you are going to obey me in anything I ask you. And he says, I provided a ram right here in the bushes. And Abraham goes and gets that ram and sacrifices it instead of his son Isaac. Let me ask you a question. Would that ram have been anywhere else except there at the top of Mount Moriah? If Abraham had chosen another mountain... If he hadn't gone as far as God wanted him to, would that ram have been there? The answer is no. In fact, Abraham, after God's provision, names the place Jehovah-Jireh, which means in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And there's a great principle there for us to learn that when we are in God's place, then we will have God's provision. Our problem is we want God's provision without being in God's place. 
God is not going to give us what's best because we don't want to go and do the things that God has called us to to get what's best. We want our own life, and we still want God's best. If you want all of what God's best is for you, you have to be where God wants you, doing what God wants you to do, because God's best is only found in God's place. And so Peter tells us here, we are to live in fear and awe and respect in obedience to our Lord, to our Father. That's the third principle. The fourth principle is, a reminder that our home is with God and not in this world. And very quickly, at the end of verse 17, Peter says we're to pass the time of our sojourning here in fear. Now, the word, the, the phrase pass the time means it's not a permanent thing, okay? It's like, and this is a bad illustration because sometimes it feels like permanent. You go to the doctor and you sit in the waiting room, right? That could be a lifetime, it feels like, some days. But the idea is we go into the waiting room to wait for our turn to come, and then we go see the doctor. It's not a permanent thing. That waiting room is not where we live. And that's the idea Peter is giving us here. Where we are now is not where we live. It's a waiting room. It's a temporary thing. We're just passing the time until we get home. But we don't just sit staring at the floor like you probably do at the doctor's office. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 17, Paul says, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. It's not just, well, I'm going to pass the time, I'm not going to do anything, I'm just kind of waiting. It is using the time that God has given us on this earth to obey him, to accomplish his purpose, to let the Spirit do his work in us. All those things that God has called us to, to make us more holy. So God's will is for us to be diligent in his work while he's busy doing his work in us, not just to sit around waiting for God to call us home. But we know that it's just temporary. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 tells us, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Okay? We will be judged, either for our sin or for the good works that we did in heaven, but we will be judged. But we're all going to die if we live long enough. That's what one of my pastors used to say all the time. Right? Unless the Lord comes back before we die, but the only other option is we're going to die. But that means this is not our permanent home. And that's why he uses this word sojourner or sojourning. We are sojourning or temporarily living in a foreign country while we complete our journey. The foreign country that we live in is this earth. We are not citizens of earth if we belong to Jesus Christ. If we call God our Father, we are not citizens of this earth. And that's why way back in verse 1, he calls his readers strangers in this earth. He said they're scattered about as strangers. And in verse 4, he says we have an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven, not on this earth. Our future home, our permanent home, is in heaven. You want to know why so many believers are miserable? Because they have too much of the world to be happy with God, and they have too much of God to be happy with the world. And so they can't ever be happy. 
They want too much of the world to really be happy in God. And yet, because the Lord is in us, he is not going to let us be happy with what we get in this world because this is not our home. So let me add one more aspect to this idea of fearing God. How about this fear of becoming too attached to this temporary world? We live in fear of becoming too attached because this is not our home. That's why John in 1 John 2.15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And by the way, John is not trying to ruin our life and restrict us from ever having fun when he says that. He is trying to warn us as believers Because he goes on and he says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It means you can't love the world and love God at the same time. You can't call the world home and call God your Father at the same time. It's impossible. There's a mutually exclusive things. It's Lot's a perfect illustration of this. Abraham gave Lot the choice of the land. Go to the mountains, go to the plains. Lot looked at the plains, it was green grass, just big areas that his, his cattle could thrive. I'll go down there. Now, those plains just happened to be right next to Sodom and Gomorrah. But he didn't move into Sodom and Gomorrah. And here's our excuse. I'm not in Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm just in the plains. I'm just where the green grass is. Where did, so- where did uh, Lot end up, though? Inside the city. And Hebrews tells us, I'm sorry, in Second Peter 2.7 Peter here describes Lot's situation. Just before God delivered him as this, he said, God delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. You cannot be happy as a believer and call this world home and fall in love with all the stuff that's around us. You can't do it. Because if we consider this earth home, then its sin will vex us just like Sodom did to Lot. We will never be happy. And we will never become holy because that's not what God has planned for us. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims. We're strangers. Hebrews says we're looking for a better city, a heavenly city. My sentiment is this. I don't want to be so comfortable in this world that heaven is foreign to me when I get there. And I hope that's your sentiment too, as believers. We don't belong here. We're put here for a little while to show people Christ so they can have the same permanent home that we do. Here in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter has given us this idea of God's gracious redemption of our souls from sin, our saving from the punishment of, of hell, punishment in hell, and that is the greatest blessing that we could ever receive. Knowing that our eternal destiny is not going to be in hell. It's going to be in heaven with God our Father. And that, even though that promise is future, it affects our life in a positive way now, and obviously it affects our life after this life in an immeasurable way, because we're made to be his children now, that we can call him Father now, and eventually we get to be in person with our Father then. What a blessing. What a hope. And that blessing should be more than enough motivation for us. 
now that we're able to call him our father, to desire to be like him in holiness and to live our life on this earth in love and the proper fear of the one who redeemed us by the blood of his son. He is our father. What more motivation could we need? We have all the blessings of eternal life at our disposal now. The only thing we're missing, the redemption of the physical body. That's coming. But what more motivation, motivation for, to hold, I'm sorry, what more motivation toward holiness do we need than to be like our Father? Well, Peter understood maybe that's not enough motivation for everybody. And so in verses 18 through 21, he says, how about if you consider what it cost God to give you that? Well, we don't have time for that today. But I want you in the meantime to go through 17 through 21 again, especially 18 through 21. Look at the cost that it cost our Father to give us these blessings of eternal life. And we'll pick that up next time. Let's have a word of prayer as we finish out today. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for the goodness that you show us every single day, Lord. We are blessed beyond what we can even understand, and yet so often we take it for granted, thinking that we are entitled to it or we deserve it. Lord, help us to remember that all we deserve is death, that everything we have in Jesus Christ is only because of your grace and your love. The privilege of calling you Father is not something that we should take lightly. And so help us always to approach you, to see you in an attitude of awe and respect, returning your love as you've shown to us. Lord, teach us that all you want for us is our best, and that best is found in your program of holiness. And so, Lord, help us to live by your truth, knowing that that will lead us to the goal. Thank you again for the lesson from your word today. Help us to continue to meditate on these things, to seek you daily, to just immerse ourselves in your word so that it becomes our guide, as the psalmist said. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path to help us to give you glory in everything. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close with hymn number 249, Just As I Am.